Welcome to the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit, a series of 15 podcasts that present different aspects of a vegan lifestyle from some of the most prominent thought leaders in veganism. Perhaps you want to learn how to be a better advocate for animals. Maybe you want to feel confident about raising your family on a plant-based diet. Proudly sponsored by VegFund, the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit's for you. Hello and welcome to the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit. I'm your host, Emma Leticia, and in this podcast, we're talking to Catherine Lamb, journalist at The Spoon. Catherine reports on food system improvements through technology and food trends, particularly in the plant-based and alternative protein sectors, and we're going to get her thoughts on what's going on in these industries. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, innovation in the plant-based food sector has been soaring now for a good couple of years, and it kind of feels like Big Meat was waiting, sitting back, see what happens. What do you think have been the key triggers for them finally moving into the marketplace? Yeah, that's something we've been reporting on a lot at The Spoon, and honestly, I think that Big Meat just moves a bit slower because they're big and have a lot of moving parts. So it takes them a lot longer to develop a product, get it approved, figure out where they're going to put it, do all the market research and the taste testing. So I think also they're, because they're so big and beholden to so many different people, they aren't going to move into something that they don't know for sure is going to be profitable. So I think they were kind of holding back, similar to fast food, which we might get into later, waiting to make sure that this meatless meat movement isn't just a fad, that it's actually going to be sticking around and that consumers aren't going to get tired of it and move on. And I think that we've seen that's not the case with success from Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods and others. So I think that they just were waiting to make sure that there was adequate demand and that it was lasting. And now that that's been proven, they are actually making their move in. And because they move slower, we're just starting to see what they're capable of, I think. So, you know, Tyson has been coming into the space with their new raised and rooted products. They previously beyond me. And then I think once they saw, wow, there's a huge market opportunity here, instead of just investing in this company, which they then pulled out of, let's develop our own line of plant-based products internally. And there's some debate over whether it's actually plant-based because their first two products, one was a mixed product. It was half beef, half plant protein. And the other was, you know, and this is something we should talk about what exactly plant-based means because it was vegetarian, but it had egg whites in it. So not necessarily based off of plants. But anyway, that's sort of them like edging halfway into that market because they're a meat processing company. So then they're sort of going halfway into the plant-based sector. And then I think they'll continue into that field. And we've seen Nestle been getting into it, Unilever through acquisition or through products developed internally. And I think that this is just the tip of the iceberg. It's going to start accelerating pretty quickly from here. Mm. So what does that mean then for the, some of the smaller players who maybe were like the front runners in the plant-based meat industry? Well, I think there's kind of two sections we can talk about for the smaller players. There's the comparatively smaller players, like the Beyond Meat, the Impossible Foods, who compared to a Tyson are literally a drop in the bucket. They're tiny. But compared to a lot of other plant-based food companies, like tiny new ones that are starting up, they're sort of veterans in the space, especially in the new plant-based space. Like It's almost like for coffee, there was the first wave, the second wave, the third wave. I feel like we're in this at least the second wave of plant-based meat, where instead of just, you know, 
tempeh and soy products that are kind of shaped to look like something. They're actually trying to make plants taste, look like, behave like meat. And so I think the Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat are kind of bigger, small players in that space, at least. And then there are all these smaller startups trying to come in and capitalize off of the movement that they've kind of started. But going back to your question, what do I think this means? I think for Beyond and Impossible, they're pretty well established at this point, And there's a lot of hype around them from the media. So I don't think that big meat getting in will take away from their sales at all. I think it will, if anything, just bring more attention to the plant-based sector. And what I've learned from talking to a lot of these new emerging companies is that they're not really worried about big meat companies coming in and taking over the market. To them, the fact that major companies are investing in these technologies and developing their own products just means that the demand is large enough. And in fact, like we see with impossible meat shortages and whatnot, there's just not enough product to actually meet this demand. And so... I think that there's plenty of room in this space. And that's what everyone says right now and agrees with for now. You know, this could all look different in five years if it becomes really saturated. But for now, I think there's lots of room for innovation and it all just comes down to taste. Like people are going to keep coming back to the products that taste good. And that's that's kind of going to be the differentiating factor for now, I think. So what do you think some of the most significant events in the plant-based food industry have been during 2019? And how has that impacted food choices for the consumer? Well, you and I were talking about before the call about the plant-based meat space and how it's only halfway through the year and it feels like so much has happened. I mean, I've been interested in meat alternatives for a few years now, but only started like really seriously covering them the past year or so, and especially since January, it seems like that's almost all that I have time to cover because there's just so much going on all the time. And I think a lot of that was spurred by Beyond Meat going public back in March. No surprise there. It's been making headlines ever since because its IPO is so wildly popular. And since then, its earnings have been huge. I mean, I'm just like looking up the article that I wrote about this when I listened to their first earnings call, net revenue of 40.2 million in the first quarter of 2019, which is an increase of 215% from the same period last year. I mean, they're just skyrocketing. And because of that, and because the media has really latched onto it, and you know, they're saying it's, I think it was like the biggest IPO pop since the 2008 financial crisis. So I think Now everyone's like, whoa, taking notice. This is not just like a hippie organization. This is a huge market opportunity. And because of that, that's catalyzed so much action from, as we were talking about, big meat players getting in on the space, also fast food players. Now we're seeing Impossible last year, I guess, was in White Castle and a couple other fast food places. And and then starting in January, we saw... Beyond Meat going to Carl's Jr. And then we've seen it in Del Taco, Impossible's at Cadoba, and now at Burger King rolling out, which is huge. And so there's just been this snowball effect of fast food places adopting plant-based meat, as well as bigger food corporations starting to either acquire or internally develop it. And it just seems like at this point, it's not quite the norm, but it's definitely like what's hot, what's new. And I think a lot of that calls back to Beyond Meat going public and just sort of proving that this is a viable investment and that it's it's not going anywhere, at least for now. Just while we're on the topic of fast food companies, you wrote an interesting piece on The Spoon on whether or not the fast food company's love affair with plant-based 
meat is going to last. Now that Nestle has partnered up with McDonald's, do you think this indicates that there's a relationship that's built to last there? That's really a good question. I kind of go back and forth on it, honestly. Like, so McDonald's serves Nestle's, it's not called the Impossible Burger, it's called the Incredible Burger, very similar. Yeah. Uh, in, <laughs> I always have to sort of check myself on that, in Germany and Israel. And they've said that they're kind of holding back on adopting a, a meatless meat option in the US until they're positive that the trend is going to stay, which is, I think, like a little bit overly cautious, especially considering mm-hmm. that Burger King, the second biggest fast food place, is kind of going whole hog. Yeah. I guess that's a pun. But is it going to last? Good question. I think it's going to just become kind of normal. It really just depends if consumers, how the rate of consumer return. And I think it's a little too early to really be able to quantify that. I mean, right now, because it's so exciting, all the fast food places that I've talked to that have put a meatless meat on their menu, be it impossible, be it beyond, which are kind of the two main options in the U.S., have seen a, a big spike in sales. I know that Kenoba has seen it. I know that Del Taco has seen it. I know that Burger King has said that they're seeing it and White Castle as well. And that makes sense from two points of view. One, it's attracting people who might not otherwise be going there, vegetarians and vegans who would maybe bypass Burger King for a subway or something because they don't think they have enough to eat there. And they're like, oh, now I can get the Impossible Burger. Let's stop. And then it also is attracting just flexitarians or carnivores even who have just seen this on the news and are like, whoa, what's this new futuristic burger? I've got to try it. And then the question is, once they've all tried it, will they keep going back? Will the vegetarians and vegans say, okay, that was good enough that I want to keep returning? And maybe they will. But I think, honestly, vegetarians and vegans also, like, they have their places they like to go. They're not necessarily going to start. That's not necessarily going to be a huge bump in sales for these big food, fast food corporations. I think it's more going to be, are these products going to attract repeat sales from flexitarians, people who also eat meat? And it might, but at the same time with McDonald's, and I don't know the exact numbers, but this past year, they also like sold more fresh beef patties than they ever had before. They switched from using frozen beef to using fresh beef for their patties, at least in the US. And because of that, sales of their beef burgers soared. So it's kind of like we're just consuming more and more protein and whether it's beef or plant-based beef, people don't really care. They're just going to get more and more. So I don't think that it's going to go away. I think that companies will keep it on their menu at least for quite a while longer because there will be that demand and some people are looking for an alternative. But I don't think that it's necessarily taking as big a chunk out of meat sales as people think. Hmm. I'm not sure if I exactly answered that, but it's just sort of what I've been finding in the research. Yeah, that's interesting. And that kind of leads me again back into one of my other questions that I had for you, because Mm -hmm. I think you've written about plant-based meat alternatives facing a few challenges and maintaining their popularity once the novelty wears off. So what do you see as the biggest challenges that they have to overcome to maintain their success long term? Well, there's kind of, I guess, three. I think three that they'll really have to tackle. One being taste. And I think they've come a long way. Like both Impossible and Beyond have unveiled within this past year, Impossible back in January, Beyond, you know, a few weeks ago, have unveiled like new meteor recipes that are meant to imitate ground beef a lot more accurately. And honestly, I think they're pretty great. I've tried both. 
some were even like too meaty for me. I wrote a review about Beyond Beef where I was like, this tastes too much like beef. I'm a vegetarian. I just probably won't buy it because I don't like that. But, you know, a lot of people I know who have tried it, who do eat beef, love it. So I think that they're getting better on the taste. But then again, that's just one small sector. That's beef and burgers. We've got to get better tasting chicken, you know, bacon, steak, all of... There's got to be really good tasting analogs of all of these meat products if plant-based meat is going to going to make a major impact and, and sort of stay relevant beyond just once the hype wears off. The second one will be price. And a few companies have said, I think Impossible specifically, that they're hoping to be cheaper than ground beef within at least a couple of years. So right now they're more expensive, not necessarily significantly so. A pound of Beyond Beef is at least at my grocery store in dollars, US dollars. And that's roughly on par with like really nice organic grass-fed beef, but it's almost triple the price of just cheap industrially raised beef. Mm -hmm. And so if they're trying to attract people who eat meat over to buying their products more than just as like a one-off to sort of do a taste test and see what it's like, they've got to get not only cost competitive with the lowest cost meat, but below that price. Because that's what might convince someone if they're like, oh, these two products taste pretty much the same. They have pretty much the same health benefits, but this one's a dollar cheaper. And so I'm going to go with the plant-based one. That's a big way that I think they can stay relevant. And then three is just accessibility. And I think that there's been huge strides there. I mean, the fact that all these options are now fast food, which, you know, a year ago, I think would have been mind boggling is pretty huge. It's just become so accessible to people in all sorts of locations, all sorts of budgets. Maybe they can't buy it while it was like the Impossible Burger was at Momofuku, but they can buy a one ninety nine slider at White Castle. And that's pretty exciting. So I think just continuing to roll out across fast food and grocery stores, you know, it's not only in Whole Foods anymore. I see Beyond Beef at my local Kroger, you know, that's the sort of steps that need to be taken to just become omnipresent in retail and in fast food so that people can truly access it really easily for a low cost and find that it tastes good. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about this kind of a controversial topic in vegan circles, but let's talk about lab grown meat or cultured meat. What I know. You- they would not like you calling it lab grown meat. Interesting. No, I know. <laughs> I know, but that's what we all call it. So I know. It's hard as a journalist sometimes because I'm like I, when I first started reporting on it, I actually wrote a, my master's dissertation on lab-grown meat. They were actually still calling it in vitro meat, which I think is even worse sounding than lab-grown yeah, meat. That uh, sound so very <laughs> imp- appealing at all. <laughs> no, and then they went to lab-grown, then cultured, and now after the Good Food Conference last year in Berkeley, a big coalition of cultured lab-grown meat companies got together and are like, we're going to brand ourselves as cell-based. So that's kind of the new, like, politically correct term right. for it. But I, have, I have heard whatever. that. Okay, we'll correct the uh, question. Let's talk <laughs> about, uh, <laughs> is it cell-grown meat then? Is it? Cell-based. But I think you or can use based. any. I mean, it okay. is... It, it, well, we can talk a little bit about it. It is grown in labs, at least right now. I think companies don't like that because it sounds kind of creepy. You know, lab-grown meat sounds like some sort of like Frankenstein food that is very off-putting, sounds really chemically, sounds really suspicious. And they're like, um, it's not that complicated. Basically, you take some cells from, for people who don't know, you take some cells, a biopsy from an animal, you put it in a 
either petri dish or like if it's a larger scale, a, a sort of bioreactor situation with some media, which is basically food so that the cells can grow and sort of replicate. So a big controversy around it is that right now these cells, a lot of companies use beetle bovine serum as the media, FBS, which is taken from baby cows during slaughter and the cow dies in the process. So it's, it's not exactly vegan. But there are a lot of companies out there, Future Fields being one of them, Integriculture in Japan being one, that are developing media made from plants. And I think that's kind of, I think companies know that the media has to be made from plants if they're going to be successful because A, it's really expensive to get fetal bovine serum. B, it's not animal free. Right. And it's not animal free. So if they're trying to say, hey, this is, this product is free from, I don't know, you can't say free from animals because it starts with the biopsy, but like this, you know, cruelty Cruelty free or whatever, you can't see that. So everyone knows that they're moving to plant-based media. A lot of companies are working on it, but that's basically the process. You take some cells, put it in a dish with some of this media, aka like cell food that helps them grow and replicate. If you want to get fancy, you can put it on a scaffold of some type that's usually made out of an edible material, like maybe mushroom or something. So then instead of just growing a bunch of cells, they can then be like smushed together with some fat to make, say, a burger. If you wanted to make something that looked like steak or looked like chicken, you have to sort of grow the cells on this sort of mold, I guess, so that it can replicate the the muscle layers that happen naturally within an animal. That's sort of the gist of what lab-grown meat is. And yeah, we were talking earlier about who exactly the target of this is. Yeah. And it's a good question. And that's one that I've been really contemplating. It's, we're not going to find out for a little bit, honestly, like if we're just looking at where we are. There's been a few taste tests. The first one was in 2013 in London. Mark Post, Dr. Mark Post, who now is the company Mosa Meats, he did the first public tasting of a lab-grown burger. And to mixed reviews, I think that he didn't really add very much fat to it. So it was not very flavorful. But, you know, that was, gosh, six years ago now. And so and there's a lot more And what was the price tag of that? I think it was, it was close to $300,000. Yeah, that sounds affordable for a burger. Right. <laughs> But the crazy thing is, six years later, it's gone down so much. I mean, just an example, there's a company in Seattle called Wild Type that's making lab-grown salmon. And they did a taste test a few weeks ago, and they said that they grew a single serving of salmon for $200. So still extremely expensive. As I said, we're not going to see this for a while popping up in our local grocery stores or even our fancy restaurants. But in six years, they've cut the cost down so much. And I think that, especially with so many new companies getting in the space, a lot of funding starting to be thrown into the space, that we're going to see them that meat starting to be affordable. You know, a lot of companies are saying somewhere between 2020, 2025, I'm guessing closer to 2025. These things always take longer. Like the company Just, just based in San Francisco, said that they would bring the first lab-grown meat to market by the end of 2018. Didn't happen. Now they're saying 2019. Eh, kind of skeptical. A big issue is also regulation because people aren't sure what to call this. They aren't sure how to regulate it for food safety. So they're actually targeting Asia as a launch venue because certain countries have less rigorous food regulations. But who's the target market? I don't know. I mean, 
people that I talk to have generally very polarizing reactions to it. Either like, oh my gosh, sounds incredible. Can't wait to try it. Or that's disturbing and I would never try that. So it's especially interesting to talk to vegetarians and vegans, which I'm sure resonates with your listeners, to see how they think about it. I think a lot of the people who are actually making these products, many that I talk to are either vegetarian or vegan, and they're doing this because they're like, this is better for the environment, and it's a way to ethically grow meat that people are going to want to eat meat. And so this is a way that we can satiate cravings, but we don't have to kill animals or raise animals on land. So I personally, as a vegetarian, would totally try it. I think it's a super personal thing. And I also think that they're not targeting vegetarians and vegans. So in the end, they don't really care if vegetarians and vegans eat it. The people who are making this want meat eaters to eat it. Yeah, it's funny. I can't remember where I read it, but I did read one of the CEOs said, you know, they weren't too fussed that vegans were freaking out and thought it thought it was gross because they weren't making it for vegans. But then there was a big conversation about, well, hang on, who are you making this for? Right. So it'll be interesting to see once the price gets down, what their marketing strategy starts to look like. It will be interesting Mm -hmm. to see that. Yeah. I mean, if they can make it below the cost of regular meat, I think that that's what they're going for. And then can just target people who eat meat regularly because they'll think it tastes exactly the same. Why not go for the cheaper option? It's quite interesting, really, because we did, it's not statistically valid by any stretch of the imagination, but we did a quick box pop opinion poll on the One Bite Vegan Facebook group. And we wanted to know what people thought of, we called it lab-grown meat. And I Mm. was actually quite surprised by the number of vegans that said that they would try it once just to see what it was like. Mm. It was like 50-50 from... People, I guess, that are vegan for the animals and are aware or are not comfortable with the use of animals being used to create the the meat in the first place, they were a definite no-no. And then there's, of course, vegans that, you know, get freaked out by anything that kind of resembles meat anyway, Mm -hmm. whether it's made from plants or cell-based technology. But yeah, I was really surprised by the number of vegans that were like, yeah, I'd give it a go once just to see what it was like. Not saying that I'd buy it all the time, but I'd be interested to try it. So that was, yeah, for me, yeah, that was I'm quite Yeah, I'm surprised by those numbers too. I think it's one in three is the latest stat that I've heard. I think that's specifically within the US. Or no, maybe I think it's two in three by this point that would taste it or open to tasting it. Hmm. So okay. we'll see. Yeah. You talked a little bit about, you know, some of these companies that are starting up and they claim that products are better for the environment and require less harm to animals. From what you've seen, do these claims stand up to scrutiny? You know, that's a good question. And I will say I'm no scientist or engineer. So I really only know what I've read about and spoken to people about. But I can say from what I've seen, So basically, if people didn't know, the argument is that everyone kind of got in a tizzy 
I think it was April this year, maybe a little bit early, February maybe, when there were some reports dropped that lab-grown meat actually maybe isn't better for the environment than just raising animals because when people are growing this meat in labs, the labs need a lot of energy to have light and to have heat and all of that. And that if you add up like the units of energy used and like greenhouse gases emitted from labs, that it's it's relatively on par with, you know, having growing cows and slaughtering them and selling their meat. I'm kind of skeptical about that. I don't know enough about energy, but I think it also depends. Like maybe that is accurate compared to some grass-fed cows in a beautiful pasture who are like raised in really nice conditions. That's possible. I feel like for an industrial feedlot, there's a lot of methane emissions and it takes a lot of energy, even just like trucking the cows back and forth from the slaughterhouse. So I don't know. And I don't have the exact data. And I don't think anybody really does. They just sort of were bringing up this question, which is a good one because no one had really challenged that before. But I also think that it's going, the environmental footprint will go down. A big cost financially and I think in terms like energy wise is the growing process, which includes like the media, which as I said before is expensive, but also a lot of meat generally has to be kept, the cells have to be kept warm as they're replicating. And so that means basically you have to keep it heated the entire time, which can be a drain on the energy. I know some companies are developing like ways to do that without having to keep them warm all the time. I know specifically fish, I think, doesn't have to be kept hot as it's being grown. Not sure exactly, but I think that there are ways, like I don't think people are going to make cattle farming any more environmentally friendly. I think there are ways that they can make lab growing meat in a lab more environmentally friendly, cutting down energy costs using solar power, et cetera, et cetera. And also just in terms of land footprint, like you can grow meat, a lot of meat in like a really tall bioreactor in a relatively small lab as compared to cattle, which require a big amount of land. So there's, in terms of land, it's clear who the winner is. But I will say compared to making plant-based meat, I think it's pretty clear that that's of the three, the, the smallest environmental impact is just turning plants into meat. Yeah, we'll have to see how that one pans out too. So now that brings me to my final question. And what do you see as some of the key trends in plant-based meat moving forward then or alternative proteins as well? First of all, I will say what I think, but I also love reporting in this space because there's always so much going on so quickly. So I'm excited to see what I'll be surprised by. But something I mentioned earlier, I definitely think blended meats are something we'll see a lot more of because they're this sort of stepping stone between eating a real beef burger and maybe you don't want to eat a Beyond Burger because you're like, oh, that's that's fake, that's chemicals, whatever, that's plants are not interested, but eating a blended burger that's half beef, half either plant proteins like pea protein or potato protein does maintain a lot of the flavor and it's still like beef, but you're cutting it by half. So, you know, I think a lot of vegetarians and vegans or people who are advocating for totally plant-based diets would say, okay, but that's not enough, but it's a halfway point and that's way preferable to everyone just continuing to eat burgers. And there's also a good health argument for that too, because you can say, oh, cut down on your cholesterol and your fat by eating a burger. Basically tastes like a burger, but it has half plants in it. So I think that that's something that will sort of ease consumers into a plant-based diet, especially ones that are, are hesitant to make those changes. 
I think that we'll see more different types of plant-based meat getting more realistic. So we have burgers that are pretty realistic, I think, Impossible Beyond, etc. I think that we'll start seeing some like really good analogs of chicken and maybe pork as well. There's a couple companies in Asia doing that, one called Omnipork, one called Future Meat, I believe, with a pH. And so I think we'll start seeing like a lot of different varieties of plant-based meat that are quite realistic, but go beyond just the sort of burgers and sausages that are widely available in our grocery store. And also moving out of the frozen section. Like I know if you go to the frozen section, you can get corn chicken tenders and stuff like that. But I think that we'll start seeing a lot of this stuff move into the fresh fresh section and maybe also into the meat section of the grocery store, which I sometimes see, but not all the time. One trend that I don't think we'll see very much of, and I'm not sure how your listeners feel about this anyway, because they are animals, but they're not really animals, or they, I don't know, insects. That's something that a lot of people bring up as sort of a future, futuristic protein source that's super low environmental impact, like lower than soy even, basically, and has really high protein payoff. But honestly, I think people are just really grossed out by insects still. And even though you can blend them up and like not even tell that you're eating, say, a pancake made with cricket flour, I think people still are, it's going to take longer for people to get used to that than it will take for people to get used to plant-based meat, certainly. I think even like lab-grown meat because people are just really icked out by insects, at least in like Western countries. Yeah, I was going to say maybe their target market for that would be Asia, maybe, Mm -hmm. where they're more comfortable eating insects. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's possible. I'm sad because I'm kind of an advocate of that personally. I'm like, they're such a good resource and so sustainable. So I hope that we see more people eating insects and more companies finding creative ways to incorporate them into our diets. Okay, well, that's very interesting. And I will definitely keep reading the spoon to see how (laughs) the next couple of years unfold and see if your predictions are correct. (laughs) Thank you. And I just wanted to add, if people are interested, we do have a weekly newsletter that I write called Future Food. And you can subscribe on the spoon. It's thespoon.tech. And it's just once a week, all about alternative proteins by me. Perfect. Thank you so much for being our guest, Catherine, and sharing your industry insights with us. Thank you so much for having me. So if you'd like to follow Catherine's writing over at The Spoon and sign up to receive her weekly update newsletter, make sure you click on the link for Catherine's bio in today's email, where you'll find details of The Spoon website and social media channels. Thank you for listening and being part of the One Bite Vegan Summit. Remember, one bite is all it takes to make a change. Thank you for listening and being part of the One Bite Vegan Summit. Be sure to keep up to date with the latest One Bite Vegan online events and free resources, including the One Bite Vegan blog and digital magazine by connecting with us via our website, onebitevegan.com. Remember, one bite is all it takes to make a change.